Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40-minute conversation, sometimes it's more because I can't stop talking, with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Elizabeth Feaster, the founder and executive director of T1 International, a nonprofit led by patients that does not accept funding from the pharmaceutical industry and is fighting to put an end to the insulin price crisis. Today, we discuss what it's like to live with type 1 diabetes and the current crisis surrounding insulin and pharmaceutical prices and what can be done to fix it. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming. So you have an interesting cross-Atlantic, like, origin story. Share, if you don't mind. Yes, of course. So I was born and raised in the U.S. in a small town um, and was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was four years old. So that was pretty scary, kind of traumatic, but I had access to what I needed to live and survive and can i ask you like what like do you remember like you were four like what happened with like the like what happened yeah so i i remember bits and pieces but i had what they thought was the flu i was kind of you know the the typical symptoms of type one are kind of flu-like you're drinking a lot you're going to the bathroom a lot you're um eating a lot and so doctors just kept saying oh it's the flu it's the flu and eventually finally my mom pushed and pushed and by then i was in um what they call dka diabetic ketoacidosis which is where your body is basically putting acid into your blood and it's extremely dangerous so i was in the hospital for two weeks and yeah just remember being really scared my family was really scared um so that was that was tough yeah so you get diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, and um, just quickly, do you know the di- what's the difference between type 1 and type 2? Because I've heard both. Yeah, so type 1 is an autoimmune condition, and that means your body stops producing insulin pretty much altogether. The cells in your pancreas stop working, and you need to take it with uh, an injection or an insulin pump. Some way you have to get that insulin into your body 24-7. Type 2 is more... Um, it can be linked towards lifestyle and genetics, and it's often about the insulin not being used properly in your body, or maybe you're not making enough of it, so you need to supplement. So with type 1, there's this urgency for insulin. You must have it. With type 2, it's a little bit less urgent, still serious, still a condition that needs to be managed and treated, but there's a lot of stigma and stereotypes around both, and often the two get really lumped together. And for people with type 1, that's tough because we didn't, you know, it's non-preventable. Is type 1, does it usually come on early in life or can it come on at any time? Or It used to be called juvenile diabetes, but now they're getting away from that because my husband, who's actually here, uh, he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when he was 23. And many people were diagnosed in their 40s, 50s, but often, you know, it gets this focal point on young people with type 1. So can you have type 1 and just be like 40 in your body? Just like, 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 it, like it, you were always going to have it. It just like didn't kind of turn on on you until... Kind of, yeah. They're they're not really sure what causes diabetes. That's another part of it, why they haven't found a cure yet. But it's something that, yeah, in, in a sense, turns where your body decides, oh, well, some part is going to attack these cells in the pancreas. And that when can you were happen. one to three, like your body, was your body making it? Yeah, exactly. And so they really, it, there can sometimes be this weird stage where it's slowly Declining. stopping making it. Yeah, but there, it's tough to to say what triggers that immune response. So yeah, it can happen in your 40. It can even happen when you're 50 or 60. And oftentimes doctors get confused and try to diagnose people with type 2 instead of type 1 because it is a little bit more rare. So then you're 4 when you find out. And then can you just, I mean, what was it like for you growing up in Illinois, like living as a type 1 um, diabetic? I mean, I, I remember... 
I feel like I remember the kids they had it at school, like with their with the little blood test, which actually kind of made me jelly because like I wanted to do that and I thought it looked kind of fierce. And we can I was do like, that if you want. I was also jealous of the deaf kids because I loved the I like lived for a hearing aid. I really wanted to speak sign language. I was like obsessed with the accessory of it all. Also, totally didn't understand anything. Also, we need to make a note on that because I don't know if that's like controversial of me to say, but honey, I'm just saying. When I was little in elementary school, I just thought that like those little accessories were everything. Yeah. Well, and that's great when the school is supportive of that too, because I remember in school, kids would count down. So I'd test my blood sugar on the meter, and the meter, it was an old meter. Things Technology has come further now, but it would start at, I don't know, 20, and then everyone would count down 19, 18, <laughs> and it was like, you know, this team. So I think kids were similar, and oftentimes kids are saying, oh, she gets a snack early. I want a snack, and, and it's, you know, I think that all comes from a good place, but for for having to live with it, you have to be quite strict, especially when I was younger and I was on older insulins, which we might get to a bit later. But I had to be really careful about eating at specific times. And oftentimes, if you have to have an emergency snack, it's because your blood sugar is low and you're feeling really bad. So, you know, there's perks to it, but there's a lot of difficulties and stress. Um, I know for my family, it was just really, really hard and stressful because I had some very scary low blood sugars where I'd have to get an emergency Glucagon shot is what they call it, to shoot up glucose into your body to make sure that you're safe. So, I mean, if it's not, like, traumatizing for you to share that with us, like, what does that look like? So, like, you wake up one morning and you're just, like, thriving, not thriving. Like, what happens? Yeah. So, it can happen at any time of the day. So, I um, I can show you my kit at some point if you'd like, but uh, I monitor my blood sugar. I have to test it between six and ten times a day. And, yeah, you can wake up and your blood sugar is normal, but if you're stressed, if you're anxious, if you've been exercising, there's a million factors that can cause your blood sugar to go up or to plummet, especially for, I tend to have especially difficult blood sugars. And yeah, when it gets really scary, if you go low enough, you can pass out, you can have a seizure, which has happened to me before. Um, and if you don't get this emergency injection, you're you're in big, big trouble. And, you know, it's that kind of you're you're out of control as much as you try to control the condition and monitor it, even if you do everything right. Sometimes unpredictable things happen because because diabetes is not fun. So, like, you could just be, like, at school and have, like— And so do you know that, like, an attack is— What is it called if, if the blood sugar—is it called an attack? You would is say it, probably just, like, a low blood sugar. Like a like a event. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Um episode maybe uh, maybe event um but yeah i mean i i have you know a couple low blood sugars regularly and that happens without it being like a massive issue at so times so any day you might just like when you test yourself it might come back low yeah it could it could and then so you have to have some kind of glucose sugar juice something but if yeah if if it gets severe enough you would maybe call it an event or something where, you know, where it could get to that seizure point so, or passing out. Like, why do I not need insulin? Like, 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 what is my body? Like, like, how does that work? Your body makes insulin on its own beautifully. And my baby pancreas. Exactly. Your baby pancreas so is I'm doing its not, thing. It's like if I have 17 coffees today and don't eat till 7 o'clock tonight or something, which I'm not doing, I swear I'm that's not my <laughs> diet. I swear I'm, I'm being more balanced than that. Um, but like, but so my little pancreas just kind of chugging along. It's just doing its thing. For, you wouldn't even know. And for you, you might get up, um, like test the. I'm what I'm trying to ask is like when you're doing everything right, like so, like you just you wake up, you test your blood sugar, you have breakfast. Yeah, yeah. Test. And then you would go to work. Yeah. Yep, basically. And so I've got this insulin pump which is connected to me, and it's ticking off insulin in my body 
regularly, consistently, like your body's doing on its own, but this machine is having to, or if you were on shots, you would be injecting. It's giving that okay, background. Okay, that little machine just tells, like, a little thing to, like, put some in? Yeah, so I could, again, I, well. It, oh, my, let's do it on the Instagram for our post content if you're into it. If you're, like, not, if you're, if you're into, cheer, I'm, what, yeah, I'm, we can do whatever. Content. That's content you can't even buy. Yeah. I'm obsessed with that. I was thinking we could do an insulin for all cheer, but oh, I we love could do. I love all that. Awesome. I'm obsessed with, with both of those. Okay, perfect. So, we but can basically, do it all. you might be at, but so you actually maybe don't get so much low blood sugars because that's always making sure that it's regulated? I, I have to say, this is a great piece of technology, but I have to manage this. It doesn't just do it all for me. So I tell it, I tell it, I need this much every hour, and then I have to adjust it. And every time I eat, so I have my breakfast, like you said, and then I have to tell it, I ate, now give me insulin. So it's not like it's, they're working on the technology to where it does it all for you. But right now, it's still me 24-7 having to think about what did I eat? Am I going to be anxious, excited today on this? I have to make sure I'm getting more insulin or less insulin So, like, on your adjust. wedding day, you had to, like, you know that your blood sugar is going to be, like, weirder when you're stressed and anxious. And it's so hard to predict, though, as well, because sometimes stress and anxiety makes it go up. Sometimes it makes it go down. And so some people are more fine-tuned with their bodies. And even though I've had this for 26, 27 years now, it can still be tough to predict. And, again, you can, can do it right, and then you can still have a plummet or a spike. So it's... It's 24-7, and, and, you know, I'm so lucky to have this technology and to have access, which, again, we'll talk about when it, when, we, when it comes to living in the U.K. I, I'm really excited to talk about that. So, okay, so, you're, so, like, you go to junior high, you go to high school, and, like, little do we know we're literally going to junior high and high school, like, three hours away from each other. Like, who knew? Could we have been any cuter, yeah. like, minding our own business? Like, I just know. in Illinois, like, running around the soybeans and the cornfields and the cows and the pigs I and know. just, like, what's that smell? It's the farm. So <laughs> then it's, like, so then you're minding your own business when, like, you moved to London? What happened? So I— I studied international studies in college. Which was where? Where did you go? At Bradley University in Peoria. <gasps> you were smarty McSmarty fucking <laughs> pants. That? That's a smart school. It's hard to, he's shaking it. I, yeah, I tried out for their cheer squad, but they were like a really good cheer squad. And I was like, I could not. Like, they're telling me, I was like, I cannot. It was, I couldn't. And also, OMG. it was just completely like way too close to my house. Yeah, well, that's fair. I needed to get like, I needed to get where there was more dicka that I could experiment with. Yeah. You know, that was not readily accessible, I feel like. Because there was a lot of for you. I mean, you're a lady, so you probably weren't paying attention, but, like, I feel like there's not a ton of gays in Peoria. No. I mean, no. No? I, they're at least not. Honey, Tucson didn't have the most. It had more than Peoria. Loved me a Tucson Yeah. Woman. Anyway, there you back go. to diabetes and insulin. Yes. Yes. My, see how my brain just wants to go to gay stuff? <laughs> she just wants to fly <laughs> away to gay stuff. that way. So, anyway. <laughs> so, but you, you studied so, at Bradley. I studied at Bradley, and then I knew that I wanted to do something to do with, well, there's a lot of problems in the world, and I wanted to try to do something to improve those, which it's massive and overwhelming, the amount of problems there are in the world. But I then got into the London School of Economics in the United Kingdom in London. So I went and studied there and um, studied kind of, again, international development, humanitarian emergencies, and still felt overwhelmed, but finally realized, okay, I know a lot about type 1 diabetes. I started learning about global issues and access to insulin issues and realizing that people in many parts of the world who have what I have just by luck of where they were born can't survive with the condition, which pretty much made me really angry because why was I lucky enough? I mean, it's already stressful and awful to live with the condition, but then to not even get a chance. I'm really moved um, by people who take 
something in their in their life that was difficult and use it to provide like hope and purpose um for not only their lives but them I'm gonna cry uh, uh, but for like people around them yeah. so just like I think that um people you know will say to me like you know how did you get through like and it's like I think using my pain to like give myself purpose to help yes. other people I don't know what that's called. I don't know if there is, like, a word for that in English. I don't know if there's a word for it in, in any language. But I think that that is, like, that gives my life hope and meaning. And ever since I was a small child getting, like, bullied as fuck in Quincy, I used to think, like, when I grow up, I want to do something that'll, like, help other kids that have this. So I just... If you're struggling mm-hmm. with, like, your purpose in life and, like, you were just saying, you know, you were studying international stuff, but you, like, you're, like, I wasn't quite sure. It's, like, you used what fueled your life yeah. and ga- and use that to make you... And I think for anyone listening, it's, like, I think that is so helpful to be able to take something that you have dealt with in your life and use that to give you fuel for purpose. Yeah, totally. And I think it also, uh, that times 100, and then also helped me see, like, what I can be grateful for, even though... It's it's an awful condition to live with. I am so I'm ten times luckier than people in other situations. Even though, you know, it's all relative, of course. But being able to say, I have a lot. I need to to use that to make it better for people that just weren't as lucky as I was. Um, we're not making a joke about that, but I am a comedian. So for people that don't um have a lot, but if you like wanna have more we're going to do some advertisements really quick so if you want to buy any of the stuff that we're about to talk about for just two seconds we're going to do two ads and then we'll be right back with we're getting curious Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. We have Elizabeth Feaster. And that was not a joke I was making at the end of the break because we're talking about serious fucking shit. Um, so basically, when you started studying the issues that people that were living with diabetes face across the world, um, you know, because in the United States, healthcare is a for-profit industry. In the United Kingdom, it is not. It is a it is a human right. Like you get access to healthcare because you're British, same thing in Canada. Like, if you're Canadian, they are taking care of you, period. It's not a for-profit enterprise, which is why in America, there's so much drama and, you know, issues around healthcare because there are people that are getting, you know, $72 billion over the last, uh, what did Elizabeth Warren say, like four years, three years? Like, of since uh, the Affordable Care Act was enacted, the insurance business has still gotten $72 billion of profit since then. So that is a fucking ruckus. Mm-hmm. That is a ruckus. So when we talk about the insulin crisis, um, I think that we don't, really understand. And so this is like 18 questions in one. And I guess I'm actually going to defer a little bit to you because you can be guest host of Getting Curious for a little bit. It's like, how did um, T1 International come into play as you were learning about these? Like, what? how did all this coalesce? Because you finished at Bradley and then like, is is your gorgeous man, is he British? Like, how do we get over there? He is, yeah. He is? He is. Hashtag London boy. Hashtag Taylor Swift. You're loving her new album. Have you heard that London boy album? Yeah. Is, do you feel like that's the story of your life? Because you're, like, listening to, like, stories about university and, you know, from uni in the afternoon. Have you heard that in song? In some ways, yes. It's Although, cute, right? Yeah, it's super cute. <laughs> <laughs> we met, actually, it's even maybe cuter or cheesier because we both have type 1 diabetes. Oh! So, yeah, so I went to study at LSE, London School of Economics, and ever since I went to study there, I was looking for 
my people with diabetes because I went to diabetes camp as a kid and it's huge. It helps you take responsibility. It makes you feel like you're not alone. Oh my God, you're going to make me cry. It's too good. It's too good. So you would go to little baby diabetes kids when you were a little baby girl. I did. Uh, I know. It was amazing. It really changed my life. It was incredible. Because it gave you like community and connection with 100%. people that were going through the same thing that you were. hundred percent. And so we met and he was running. At camp? No. So we met oh in London God. at a, oh, yeah. at a type one social meetup Got group. It, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so he w- he ran the group and in London? Yeah. I wish we could come in here. Come in here. <laughs> come, come, come. Just come say hi. Because the husband's in the other room, you guys, and I want to hear his little baby British accent. Not to sexualize British accents. <laughs> I knew British people are going through they a lot. They are but, nice. But they're so cute. Yeah. Hi. I didn't know who you were before. Nice to meet you. Uh, just say hi to the microphone. Hello? <laughs> uh, and, you're, and you're from London? I, well, I'm, I we met in London. That's where we were living. But, but not, where are you from? From I'm from the northeast of the country, near Newcastle. Is that Tancaster? Where Tan's from? It's a bit north of, from there. Oh, even not, more north. Yeah, even more. Yeah, almost Scotland. Yeah. So when I met Scotland. him, I thought he sounded Scottish, but now his accent's no. quite neutral. I know. I've gone a bit American, actually. Okay, get out of here. We love you so much. You're <laughs> okay. so cute. Bye, bye, bye. You okay, stay here. Bye. We love you so much, John. Ah, <laughs> oh, you bagged a good one, honey. He's gorgeous. Thank you. Oh, and smart and involved. We love him. Yeah. Oh my. God. Okay, so anyway, so he was running this gorgeous social meetup group for people with diabetes exactly. in London. And so, yeah, we... And you're a little baby girl who just got done with college. Yeah, and I was doing my master's, and we just hit it off. He baked some baked goods and... Do you love British of, baking challenge? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, we do, love it. Sidebar. Like, do we have to, like, deal with anything when we want to have baked goods when we have diabetes? Like, what happens? So, that's that's an interesting one because, again, a lot of the myths out there are, like... No sugar or sugar causes diabetes and all these things. And, of course, when it comes to type 2 and lifestyle choices, that can impact it. But for people with type 1, of course, you have to be careful. But for us, it's all about counting the carbohydrates. So if we are—it's it's really carbs, so pasta, any of that stuff, you really have to count. Oh, it turns into sugar. Yep. Yeah. And so then you have to calculate and give a lot more insulin. So if you're having baked goods, it's fine as long as you give the appropriate amount of insulin. And then for each individual person like me, my body just doesn't handle carbs very well. So I try to avoid, but you also got to live your life. So you have to give yourself, the insulin has to correspond for how many carbs. Exactly. Interesting. So you finish badly, you go there, you're doing your master's. And as you're studying at the London School of economics, that was kind of when you were coming into your passion purpose of T1 International? Yeah. Towards the end of that, it was kind of thinking, what am I going to do with this? I know that I want to probably work in nonprofits, do global work. And then eventually it sort of came to, I was I was writing a blog about just my London experiences. And I was like, I should do a blog about these issues that I'm learning about. I started learning that there weren't any organizations that existed that were trying to change the insulin crisis globally that we're having patients representing themselves. Oftentimes, it's big corporate interests that are representing patients um, and humans, which is problematic, I think. And so started just putting all the information that I was learning together in this blog, which then blossomed into eventually as I connected with more people and learned more about the issues, I realized, okay, nobody's doing this. Nobody's doing an organization that's focused on advocacy, focused on long-term solutions, I'm going to have to do it. And so we registered as a charity in the UK. I got a board of trustees and have had so many incredible volunteers that built and grew the organization into what it is now. So 
Um, just rewinding a little teensy tiny bit. So, like, when you were growing up in America and like going to like going to Bradley, like, were you just like on your parents' insurance? Like, they would give you the insulin that you needed, and you yes. didn't have to totally worry, or and you had to worry about it and be responsible for it. But you knew where you were getting your insulin. Yes, from. exactly. My my dad's job, thankfully, I had pretty decent insurance, but. I graduated before Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, came came into play. So the day that I graduated from college, I was kicked off my parents' insurance. And so I was – it's a long story, but to cut a long story short, I ended up working two jobs to kind of equate to full-time, but none, neither of them offered insurance coverage. So we had to pay – I think it was – just around $600 a month just to be added back on to my parents' insurance, plus all the co-pays, deductibles, all of those things. So that experience also really kind of opened my eyes to this is what I'm going to have to worry about and contend with. Is insulin sold as like a medicine in the U.S.? So like if – like um like, as I would assume everyone with type 1 diabetes, like, do you need, like, a like like you may need, like, 500 grams, but someone else maybe needs, like, 200 exactly. grams. Like, exactly. Like, so anyone needs, like, a different exactly. amount of money. It could be one to four vials or even more each month. And that has a price on it. Like, they put a price on oh, it. Oh, yeah. And you will die if you don't have insulin. 100%. Within days or hours. I've, yeah, as I've said, I've experienced diabetic ketoacidosis, ketoacidosis myself, and it's it's very painful and very scary, and it definitely will lead to death in a short period of time. And so even that was back in 2011, the cost was still very high. And now, you know, almost a decade later, the costs have just skyrocketed over 1,200%. So once you—okay, fuck me. Um, I need to write that down so I can come <laughs> back to that. Um Wow, one thousand percent. Yeah, Gee, I don't even know what that 1, is. One thousand two hundred percent. Yeah, twelve hundred. Jesus fuck. Yeah. Okay. Um. Sorry, mom. So, <laughs> how did your relationship with like the uh, obtaining insulin change like once you moved to the United Kingdom? Oh my gosh. So, because like, I, did you get to take on like the NIH like once you went as a student? As a student who's studying for more than six months, I was able to access the national healthcare system, which is incredible. I will. I honestly will never forget. The first time I went to the pharmacy to pick up my prescription, my insulin, my test strips, all of these things that you stress about and have to battle with insurance, I went into the pharmacy, picked it up, they handed it to me, I walked out, and it was just like no copays, no nothing. And I I don't remember if I did cry at the time or just was kind of in shock, I think, of the fact that this is how the system works here. There is so few less middlemen and stresses, and I still just have such gratitude every time I walk out of the pharmacy. So once you could prove, like, as someone that was going to go to school for more than six months, you didn't have to wait the six months. Like, you just had to show that you were going to be exactly. there for more than six months. that I was part of a year-long program. And then I went to the, the doctor who gave me my prescriptions. And did you get a bill? Did you get, like, did you have to just, did you have to pay British taxes or something? Like As a student, no. But, but then, when I was no longer a student, um, once I and you had met that gorgeous man. I met that gorgeous man, and then we eventually decided to get to get married. And once I was a resident and could sort of prove that I was a resident and paying taxes, then I was also eligible for the NHS. And but basically, you didn't have to worry like where your insulin was coming through in that transitionary time. No, I mean, yeah, there. As long as you kind of know that you have a right to live in the country, they don't. At least in my experience. Obviously, people have different experiences, but overall, there wasn't there wasn't a worry. I mean, I've worried so much less about where 
my medication is coming from, how I'm going to get it, the cost. I mean, just so much less than in the States. And I would love to move back to the U.S., to be quite honest with you. But with two two of us with type 1 diabetes, it would be the dumbest financial decision we would ever make. So when we have a for-profit healthcare system like the United States does, um, but then there's one like, you know, Canada, United Kingdom, I think Japan is more— um, Actually, I don't know what Japan's is, so I won't even ask. I don't, yeah. So, I mean, um, what are the things that people with, with type 1 diabetes are facing in countries that have for-profit or no healthcare systems? Yeah, it, it really does vary. So even like you were saying, I think the UK is, is a good example. There's other countries like Scandinavian countries which have very good healthcare coverage for their people. Canada's slightly more in between. They definitely cover on a base level, but there's a bit more out-of-pocket costs that people have. And then in some countries that I work in, Ghana, Uganda, uh, Tanzania, the healthcare infrastructure varies, but it can be a lot more difficult. They also often have insurance and many hoops to jump through. And just the the cost that the companies are charging for insulin. We do a survey at T1 International every two years that looks at what the out-of-pocket cost is for people. And some people in in certain countries are paying, for example, $10 a vial, but that may be more than 50% of their monthly income. So the companies are charging whatever they can get away with no matter where they are in the world. And that $10 is... How much of that person's? It could be 50%, 60%, even 80%. If you're in a developing your, place, yeah. then you have to have it to live. Exactly. Are the rates of type 1 diabetes in those countries like similar to what they are Great here? question. Actually, there is not good data on this. So part of what Team International does is tries to look into and collect more data because there are some countries where they don't even know th- the rates. They claim that they're lower, but they haven't had anyone actually go and study and look at the rates. And there's also slightly different presentations of diabetes where they're maybe kind of in between type 1 and type 2. So there's a lot of interesting stuff that people aren't putting money and research time into, which they should be, I think. How do pharma... Well, oh, uh, right on an interesting moment. We're going to be right back with more uh, Elizabeth Feaster right after the break. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. We have Elizabeth Feaster, founder of T1 International. So basically, um, how is insulin made? Like from like how do these pharmaceutical companies like make the insulin that gets sold? Yeah. So it used to be so insulin has had progression over a long period of time. It used to be animal insulin that was made from animals. Now it's made in big vats, basically chemically produced. Um to mimic human insulin, but it does work better in the body than animal insulin, for example. But it is made in these giant vats and then put into these small vials or pens. And estimates are it costs around $6 maximum for one vial, yet the companies are charging around $300 list price for one vial. So Uh, in America... We're, yeah, it's it, we're talking about America, but but in other places, again, they will charge whatever, whatever they, can. they can. And and of course, they're still making a profit. Even if they charge 25 bucks, they're making a massive profit on something that costs around $6 to produce. How is that allowed to happen? Well, there's a lot of reasons. So these pharma companies have a lot of power and influence. Um, I'm sure, as you know, the lobbying dollars spent by these pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, all of these big corporate players put so much money into our government that most 
most people in government don't want to take a stand and hold these companies accountable. They just have so much power. Of course, here in the U.S., also, the system is way more complex than it is in most mo- in many other countries. So because we have all these middlemen, they can all just keep blaming each other and say, oh, well, it's the pharmacy benefit manager's fault. It's the insurance fault. And then nobody ever really gets held accountable, and they all keep profiting off of patient lives. So when you started T1 International, I mean, there's – I think for people that aren't living with diabetes, it's hard to even understand like what, you know, you're up against and what you kind mm-hmm. of have been facing and and just like what your mindset would be um, just having like lived with it. So, but that's like on a personal, you know, like one-to-one level, like what are the wider issues of this insulin crisis? Um, and like, so what are the issues and then what are being done with them from T1 International's perspective? Yeah. So, I mean, on, on the most basic level, people are dying because they can't afford their insulin. And this is this is horrific in a country that constantly likes to brag that it has the best healthcare system in the world. So right here in America, right now, there is a crisis of people dying from lack of insulin. Exactly. So even just this year, we know of four people who confirmed that it's because they were rationing their insulin because it was too expensive is why they passed away. And that's just for... Let's break that down a little bit because I think that is something that people are not hearing. Mm. I did not know about this until I discovered T1 International and until I discovered you. Mm. Um, So there are people in America that are young people that are living with type 1 diabetes that due to the... Because, okay, so let's say that you're insured, right? So, and let's say that you have like a silver plan and your um, prescription deductible is, uh, let's say, 2000 So until you pay $2,000 in prescriptions, you don't get that copay. Like, exactly. so your insulin's not going to be $35 until you've spent 2000 Exactly. Okay? Let's say you're a young person and let's say that like your parents aren't around anymore. Your parents don't have means. Like, you know, you don't have help. You're a single person, 20s, 30s, maybe you have student debt. Maybe you in and let's say maybe you uh, lost your job. You don't have COBRA. Maybe you didn't sign up for the Affordable Care Act. You're like, I'll just pay that 1% of whatever, like, you know, for being uninsured. Um, and so those people would have to, because there's an uninsured issue or there is an insured but can't meet the copay issue. Totally. So there's both. Totally. So in these four confirmed cases in 2019, it, it, do we know of any cases in 18 and 17? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there yep. were. Yep. So we have we have kind of a running list of families we're in touch with um, over the past few years. We have 12 on that list right now. But many many people's deaths get attributed to something else that was caused by their DKA. So we know that the number is much higher. We know that 26% of people who responded to our survey, which had nearly 1,000 respondents, 26% of people are rationing their insulin due to cost. They have rationed at some point in the last year. So rationing is very dangerous and leads to these deaths. What happens when we ration? So... It's like I was explaining to you earlier, diabetic ketoacidosis, where acid builds up in your blood and it can kill you. It's it's incredibly dangerous and it presents like the flu. So a lot of young people who have never experienced DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, before will start throwing up. They'll start being sick and thinking, gosh, I really have the flu. And they don't connect it because also your brain function is not as strong when you're in DKA. Again, acid in your blood. So... You're feeling poorly, you think you have the flu, and you just kind of don't do anything about it, and and this is what has led to the deaths. And would that diabetic person, like, not have the gauge thing that's, like, attached to you that, like, ha- like that tells you where you are or something, or— So, again, it really depends. Even if you 
Probably not, because if you're struggling financially, if you don't have oh, yeah, insurance, you, uh, uh, you don't, uh, you can't uh. afford the technology. You're not testing regularly. Also, if so I if know, you don't have the thing hooked into you, you're still having. Like, you would just be doing the blood point, which trick. I do too. And and this just gives me insulin, so it doesn't tell me my oh, blood sugar oh, levels. Okay, so you're still having to do that. Okay, There's right. a lot of different pieces of technology, though. But yeah, more than likely. Someone who also knows that their blood sugar is running higher than they want it to be isn't going to want to test if they already know that they're high. To see that number is pretty demoralizing. So not only are you probably not testing for that reason, you probably can't afford the test strips. So there's all these things that compound. And you can't help if your blood sugar is high. I mean, what? because like if the person's like trying to eat healthy, trying to avoid carbs, like they're not, you know, they're doing all the best things, but they but, maybe have stress maybe because they don't have enough money for exactly. the insulin. So, and if you're taking less insulin, your blood sugar will be higher. So every time you inch back on that insulin, your blood sugars creep up and up and up. So really, it's like if your body, if your meter is telling you that you need a certain amount of insulin or your blood test is telling you that you need to dose yourself a certain amount of insulin, that's the amount you need to dose. Yes. And if you don't have that, then why would you test? Because then you're being told to do something that you literally cannot do. Cannot so it's this terrible you. cycle of all these things that are playing against people who, as you say, are already probably struggling with many things. People, stories that we know, some of them had insurance, some of them didn't. Many of them were working multiple jobs. You know, people are doing their best, and this is this is what's happening, and it's incredibly outrageous. It it makes me sad. It makes me angry. And so— But you know if you did a thought—well, first of all— Thank you so much for all the good work that you're doing for people that are living with type 1 diabetes. So thank you. Um, second of all, if you had a 1,000 respondents from this and you know that a, over a quarter, like 26%, I mean, obviously that is something that's going on in the wider type 1 diabetes community. If, if that's So totally. that is like a huge issue across the board. And it can lead to like, I'm sure it leads to other health issues for people with type 1 diabetes, which would only put a bigger impact on the healthcare system. And this is one thing that really pisses me the fuck off. That thought of... Um, you know, like I compare it to like drunk driving because it's like it it makes sense in my mind. It's like when people are like, well, I don't want to spend money on a cab, so I'm going to like drive myself to and from. Well, now you've endangered people's lives. Plus, you've gotten a DUI and now you have like $15,000 of court fees to pay off. And so from a healthcare perspective, it's like this when it's for profit, it's like and just, you know, a lot of times like Republicans here in this country, it's like they don't want to spend money on um you know, healthcare, for instance, because they're like, it's too expensive. But the cost of not caring for people in the first place ends up way superseding the cost that it would have been if you would have just helped people, if you would have just done, if you would have invested in people in the first place, it would have been less expensive in the grand scheme of things. It's it's being so tight with your fucking money that makes it more expensive yes. later on. Preach, yes, totally. And this is this is where it just becomes... Again, so difficult because we can see the power and influence from these companies. We also, you know, not there's there's great organizations out there doing great work, but most diabetes organizations take huge sums of money from the big three insulin manufacturers. Insulin manufacturing is dominated by three big companies only. They basically hold a monopoly, and their prices have been going up in lockstep. Who are they? They're Eli Lilly, Novo Nordisk, and Sanofi. Uh, Eli Lilly's uh, based in America. The other two are based in Europe, but they— and if they're making vats that cost $6, but they charge 300 Exactly. And they're the only the ones. They kind of push other players out of the market. They have this huge power and influence. And they're also influencing many, many health organizations, which is why these organizations stay – well, we believe this is why they stay quiet. And they don't speak out because nobody wants to bite the hand that feeds them. And they can't advocate as freely and speak about these deaths. And no one's talking about these deaths. In America, do we get 
insulin from the ones that are in Europe? So some, some, yes. So I wonder if that has something to do with like those, you know how like Trump was all about like, you know, don't send the business to Ireland, but sometimes it's like, right. I bet the ones that if we get insulin from the ones in Europe with like tax law things, like I bet those ones are getting like really fucking rich. But I bet the American one sucks too. Yeah. They all, they all are. And then Brexit's a whole other thing, too, because people are worried about insulin supply once Brexit oh. happens. But that's a whole other conversation. Do you, Are you concerned about that? I mean, any time that I have to think about my insulin supply being compromised, it's terrifying. I don't imagine that the companies would – if anything, I'm just worried that the national healthcare system in the UK will get further ripped off because they'll find ways to charge more and say, well, now it's because of all the Brexit negotiations and because of the way things now work. we can charge you we more. We can charge you more. That's my concern. And I and I would think that the government would know that we have to have our insulin. But again, it's, an, it's a battle I don't want to have to fight and it scares me to have to fight that battle when there's big battles going on elsewhere. Do you, so speaking of battles, in America, you know, I think, Transparency around healthcare, I think, is a really big deal. And like, and and, I mean, until we make the healthcare system a right and not a for profit um, entity, I think that this is going to con- continue to be an issue for people just across the um, across the country. But I do know that there are some things that T One International has, you know, been advocating for, um, you know, to create to help with some policy change. And I know that there has been some victories in the last few years with policy change. Mm. Give us a silver lining. Yeah, of course. Well. To me, the biggest hope that I see in all of this, because it is kind of a dark outlook, is these successes that we've had. And these successes are because of patients, people like me and my colleagues and my volunteer friends, realizing that we have a voice. And, you know, this is where change has happened historically with the HIV AIDS movement. It was led by patients and the people most impacted by what they were facing. We know what it's like and we know what needs to change. And this has led to Yeah, progress. We've seen transparency legislation passed in Nevada, which was the first of its kind, to try to bring more light. Because as I mentioned before about all the finger pointing, until we can see more of what's actually happening behind the scenes, it's really hard to make meaningful legislation to address it. We've also seen price caps. Can you tell us, uh, so that bill that you're talking about, it's um, Nevada Senate Bill 539, which requires insulin manufacturers to report costs and profits and to notify the state before planned price increases. That's right. That's interesting. Yeah. And this is what the kind of things that we need. But the companies are kind of fighting that. Of course, they have a lot of power. They have a lot of money. They're pushing back so that they don't have to hey, do these reports. Did you did, – is that where you were able to get some of these prices from from that bill of like the $6 to $300? Did that that was from this? a different study. Um, we're still kind of working on getting the – the results from this legislation that's passed, but this is where advocacy and what we do as an organization is such a long game because this is this is one step, but we have to make sure that we actually get the reporting and that we act on that reporting. So there's other legislation that's coming forward, like putting a cap on the amount that people and have to pay. And that's a California one? Um, so or? there is some promising legislation in California, but Colorado recently passed a, a ca- price cap. Oh, I don't have that one in my yeah. notes. Tell us, tell us, <laughs> so, tell us. So it's very recent, um, and it's, it's $100 for people with insurance, though, so this doesn't include people without insurance, and we're really trying to improve this this legislation, but it's a first step. So um, for for one month, the maximum is 100 which I feel is still too much. But again, it's a step in the right direction where it's stopping people from having to pay 800 or or 1000 I mean, so like I um, – okay, so I'm HIV positive, and I, uh, this actually just happened to me like a month ago where – I didn't have a bottle of my pills. Like, I had left them in New York, and I was in Philly, and I didn't want to miss a night. And so it was, like, 10 o'clock at night. And for me to go buy um, 
like a month of my pills because I haven't needed to use my deductible yet. Cause like I've just, you know, it, like it just comes yeah. when it, so I haven't had a deductible. It was $3,000 to get a bottle of pills for 30 pills. So it's like, and I have insurance. Right. So, and, and, right. My, and my deductible was, I think my, my prescription deductible is really high. Mm-hmm. So like that didn't even meet it. Yeah. So it's like, or maybe wow. it does now, but I ended up paying like $3,000 yeah, plus for, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I would much rather pay a hundred you know, exactly. to get my shit. Exactly. Um, you know, so I just think that's crazy. I, I fuck it. I'm gonna do it right now. So when this comes out, we can do it. I am supporting Elizabeth Warren for president because she wants to I, I that is what sold me is like I am all about taking the money away from the insurance companies. Yeah. 72 motherfucking billion dollars is too motherfucking much. I've been working my ass off all day and night for my whole motherfucking life. And Get out of my face. Yes. With 72 billion motherfucking yes. dollars. Yes. Fucking Definitely. Get out of here. It's outrageous. Uh, um, that is who I'm endorsing for president. You did hear her here first. Uh-huh. Senator uh, Warren, get your ass in here. Yeah, I know you're saving on. the world, but fuck. We want to hear what's going on. Elizabeth Feaster, queen. So this is that part in yoga class where, um, you know, you, you wanted to learn Crow Bacasana, but, you know, that teacher was just doing arm bands and all sorts of shoulder mobility and you're like fuck I'm never coming back to this class again what did we miss in class uh and and with T1 International how can well one thing that you touched on that we I actually we actually really do have to talk about you do not accept contributions from from big farm correct we don't from day one we we wanted to be independent uninfluenced we don't accept from big pharma from we we're really careful about thinking about the money that we do accept to make sure that it is not influencing us in so in small way. donor only. We yeah, we're kind of getting to where we might be getting some bigger grants, but we're we're really thoughtful but and not considered from not from pharma, not not in any way that again we try to be really cautious about yeah where will where, where might this influence us and if it does in any way that we don't have complete control over our advocacy, we don't accept that fund those I funding. I love that. So now, is there any is there any headstand or bacasana that we missed? Uh, let me think. Like, should people follow like T One International Instagram? Please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're on all the channels. Does any one of those things interact more with like some news policy, or is one more informative or uplifting? Like, where do you think people should really get into? Great question. Um, the insulin for all hashtag is big on most channels, particularly Twitter. So there's a lot of discussion and stuff happening there. But I would say, yeah, Instagram is more uplifting. If you want some, it's a tough issue, but it's it's positive. We're also holding a vigil this weekend to honor lives lost. Nine families who have lost someone will be speaking at this event. It's going to be outside of Eli Lilly right in front of their headquarters. This is a difficult, tough issue. But as I said, nobody's really talking about it aside from us, because we're independent. And although this is a massive issue, you won't see the bigger organizations talking about because these they're being deaths. paid off by the insulin companies, essentially. Mm, yeah. Well, you didn't say it, but I did, so yeah. it's fine. <laughs> um, Elizabeth Warren for president. Um, so, great. I mean, I feel complete. Do you feel complete? Yes, thank you so Elizabeth much. Elizabeth Schuster, thank you so much for your tireless advocacy, and thank you for... Uh, we got to figure out the word and what language it exists in, but turning your pain and your turning your pain into your purpose yes. is incredible. And thank you for using your power for good. Yes. 
You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Elizabeth Feaster. You'll find links to her work in T1 International in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJBN. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, show them how to subscribe. Honey, we're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We're all over the damn place. Getting Curious is produced by Emily Bosick, Julie Creo, Ray Ellis, Harry Nelson, and Colin Anderson. And me! Hey, hey.